The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host today. It's time for our Thursday show with my good friend, Dr. Peter Hammond. So let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I'm with you. Thank you, Andrew. Excellent. And folks, we're going to start another new series today. Now, this is a bit of a play on the show that uh, we, the recent series, rather, that Peter uh, produced for us the real story of South Africa's greatest Prime Minister Hendrik Verwood and why he was assassinated today's show is the real story of Stephen Mitford Goodson's expose of globalist General Jan Smuts South Africa's worst Prime Minister and why he wasn't assassinated so Peter where would you like to start us off with today's topic Stephen Mitford Goodson was a good friend and in fact, I was responsible for uh, taking his funeral and uh, his burial service. And uh, he also asked me to write the foreword for this book that I'm starting a series on today, General Young Christian Smuts, The Debunking of a Myth. And uh, as you say, could have easily had the subtitle of South Africa's worst prime minister and why he was not assassinated, which will become obvious. But John Smuts is one of the most influential people of the 20th century, not only for South Africa. And by the way, our main airport in Johannesburg was called Jan Smuts Airport uh, for a very long time. It's only recently been changed to be renamed after some Marxist of the ANC. But um, Jan Smuts was a major globalist, and you'll see why uh, he had the most important airports in South Africa named after him. It's vital that we actually understand the role played by Jan Smuts and, and if we're to understand the times and why he played the role he did. He was a graduate of both Stellenbosch University and Cambridge Universities. Smuts was recruiting the globalist agenda of Cecil John Rhodes and the De Beers Mining Company. And uh, he was the state attorney for the South African Republic, where he played a pivotal role in leading the Transvaal into war with Great Britain for the Second Anglo-Boer War, which was absolutely disastrous for everyone concerned. Smuts played a key role in playing South Af- bringing South Africa into both the First World War and the Second World Wars on the British side. Smuts drafted the foundational documents for both the League of Nations and the United Nations, and he served in Lloyd George's war cabinet in the First World War and in the war cabinets of Winston Churchill in Great Britain in the Second World War too. He played a key role in deposing the very popular South African Prime Minister, General James Barry Herzog, September 1939. He effectively staged a coup d'etat to oust the extremely popular James Barry Herzog. James Barry Herzog was a a war hero of the Anglo-Boer War. He's a judge and he was a general. And James Barry Herzog was the um, most popular Prime Minister we've ever had in that he was elected five times by overwhelming landslides every time opposing Smuts. Smuts was his competition as Prime Minister, and every time uh, James Ray Herzog won for five years and five elections in a succession. So he's 15 years Prime Minister of South Africa. But because Prime Minister Herzog refused to declare war on Germany in September 1939, Jan Smuts ousted him from the Union buildings. And uh, without a referendum, without a new election, Jan Smuts became the new Prime Minister. It was effectively a coup d'etat. 
And uh, immediately after that, he shipped secretly all the gold in South Africa, 20 million pounds to America on board the US battle cruiser Quincy to fund Lend-Lease to Britain and later to the Soviet Union. Uh, so South Africa actually paid for it with our gold, which it was news to us in South Africa. It never was reported here. The only reason I came to hear of it first was from Pat Buchanan's book, uh, The Unnecessary War, How Britain Lost the Empire and the West Lost the War World. And uh, he referred to it there, and I questioned Stephen Mitchell Goodson about this. And because he had been director of the Southern Reserve Bank, he was able to go back into records and find, indeed, this did happen. And he's got details about this secret donation from South Africa of 20 million pounds of gold uh, to the United States to pay for Lend-Lease uh, at the beginning of the war, because as you know, the United States didn't do much for free. And uh, Britain is still paying off its war debt today, but nobody's ever acknowledged what South Africa did in funding Lend-Lease to both Great Britain and to the Soviet Union with our gold. Not that the South African citizens had any say in the matter, but that was Jan's much unilateral uh, decision after being requested to do so by his friend Winston Churchill, who also came to power through effectively a coup in England because nobody actually elected him either. Considering Smuts's critical role in three of the most ruinous wars South Africa has ever been involved in, it's surprising how little is actually known about this very intriguing man. So Stephen Mitford Goodson has done us all a tremendous service in lifting the veil of secrecy on so many facts and facets of this extraordinary life, which have actually been skillfully concealed from the public. So this book really serves as a, a counter or a complement to his outstanding biography on Hendrik Verwoerd, South Africa's greatest prime minister. And so this book on Jan Smuts is essential reading for somebody wanting to understand world history in the 20th century and South African history. I think you'll be astounded at the role played by this extraordinary lawyer, this politician and military leader, and how his influence continues to affect us to this day. This is very relevant to people anywhere in the world. This isn't just relevant to South Africans. Jan Smuts has been an iconic, heroic figure for many, and we've got monuments all over the place in South Africa, including Cape Town too. In fact, when I hike up Table Mountain, part of the hike that I take our Great Commission course people up is called Smuts Track, and uh, because Jan Smuts was known to hike that particular route frequently, and so we can't get away from him. He's a larger-than-life figure in South Africa, and all over South Africa you see reminders of the importance of Jan Smuts in our history. He studied at Cambridge University, where he adopted a philosophy known as holism, and he made a stance which was basically grounded in internationalism. He became a globalist after studying at Cambridge, and he pledged his services to the international bankers, the Randlords and the Rothschild Group, and Cecil John Rhodes's vision uh, to basically make the world a one-world government under the British and the bankers. And uh, he involved South Africa in three terrible ruinous wars, he introduced the Central Bank of South Africa, so the Southern Reserve Bank was his doing when he was Prime Minister. Not that anyone elected him Prime Minister, but he was the deputy when our first Prime Minister, Louis Boota, died. And so, as the acting Prime Minister, he was able to bring the Central Bank to bear in South Africa, which began state capture in our country. Jan Smuts was committed to a new world order under a world government and he saw this as the logical outcome of his holistic view. He was infatuated with Zionism. He is credited with doing a lot of Winston Churchill's thinking for him and a lot of Winston Churchill's speeches were actually Jan Smuts's work. Jan Smuts was actually quite a genius. He was born in British South Africa in the British Cape Colony. He studied law in Britain and uh, he was heavily indoctrinated and apparently recruited into British intelligence early on in his studies in Cambridge. He played a treacherous role in betraying the Transvaal people and President Paul Kruger during the Anglo-Boer War. And uh, he was involved with the very same people like Strakos, Stratos, who paid Winter Churchill's gambling debt and who basically um, bought up career and changed his direction in the 30s. What's also interesting is that Strakos left only two bequests in his 1943 will. And one of them was to Winston Churchill, the other was to Jan Smuts, 
with profuse expressions of appreciation for the pivotal role he had played. And uh, we can see that when we read Stephen Mitchell Curtis's book. He also was very involved with guiding President Woodrow Wilson at the Versailles Treaty. He was a key player in the Versailles Treaty. He played a major role in bringing about the League of Nations and the British Commonwealth, by the way. He is credited as being the one who came up with even that name and the concept of the Commonwealth. And uh, he also was a key player in launching the United Nations and wrote its preamble. Uh, he crushed the 1914 rebellion in South Africa, played a very vital part in the British Imperial War Cabinet. He helped fashion not only the British Commonwealth, but a lot of the New World Order. And uh, he was involved in the Osservar Bronfach, which was, in fact, a, it turned out to be not just a cultural organization to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the Great Trek, but a deception operation set up by the Smuts government to be a lightning rod to bring in all the opposition to the government under one roof that they could spy on them and betray them. And Smuts played a key role in in this also via Brunswick, which was um, nothing more than a government front, basically, which played a very treacherous role. And uh, Smuts was very involved in the Balfour Declaration, apparently was the one who drafted the Balfour Declaration that brought America into the war and pledged the British Empire to handing over the uh, land of Palestine to the Rothschilds to produce an Israeli state, uh, which, um, of course, was not British to give. Britain apparently is quite good at promising people things that they had no right to give. But anyway, that's something else. And so he is greatly honored, Smuts is greatly honored in Israel. He had a close friendship with Chaim Weizmann, and there's a kibbutz and there's streets in Israel named after Jan Smuts. He was Prime Minister of South Africa from 1939 to 1948, during the whole time of the Second World War. Um, and it was the soldiers returning from the war that voted against him and resulted in his party's defeat and the National Party coming to power in 1948. Jan Smuts was much resented by the actual soldiers of South Africa because I think they apparently understood that he was something of a traitor. And for many Afrikaners through the generations, he's been seen as a traitor since the First Anglo-Boer War and especially during the First World War. Uh, during the Second Anglo-Boer War, I should say, in the First World War, he is seen as a traitor. And there are many who saw him that way, even after the Second World War. But as time has gone on, he's been greatly revered in the internationalist globalist circles and universities, and uh, we will see why uh, in a moment. So Jan Smuts was the dominant figure on the world stage of politics for over 50 years. He led commanders in the Anglo-Boer War, and in the First World War, he is a member of the British Imperial War Cabinet. He helped create the Royal Air Force. He's credited as being the father of the British Royal Air Force. In World War II, he is appointed a field marshal. He's the only person to have signed the treaties that ended both the First and the Second World Wars. And he was central to the formation of both the League of Nations and the United Nations. And uh, he urged the formation of these new international organizations for the preservation of peace, or globalist government, actually. He is the only person who signed the charts of both the League of Nations and the United Nations. He established the British Commonwealth in many ways. In 2004, he is named by the voters in South Africa as um, one of the greatest South Africans of all time. He occupied the sixth position in a South African Broadcasting Corporation poll. But very few people could answer who was he and what influence did he actually have on world events. The big question is, was he a loyal servant of the South African people? Or did he have a different agenda and did he serve other masters? And I think the answer to that question by Stephen Goodson is yes, he was a globalist. He was in the pockets of the bankers. In fact, he was a paid agent of British intelligence and worked against the cause of South Africa on many occasions. In 1949, after he was ousted as Prime Minister of South Africa, he was asked why did he not write his personal memoirs as Winston Churchill had done? Smuts replied, I know too much. And he could not write any memoirs, not only because he was too busy, but he said the documents used by the historians as source materials do not represent the truth. And if the truth was divulged, it would gravely disturb the accepted version of events. And uh, this is quoted in J.H. Debussy's book, South African Struggle. So Smuts 
uh, said that, you know, if he wrote his memoirs, it would um, upset the, the narrative of accepted history and that would be um, unacceptable. And so the real Jan Smuts is what Stephen Goodson sought to get to grips with and facets and facts of his life were, which had been skillfully concealed from the public for over half a century had been now exposed. So the essence of Stephen's book is that Jan Smuts was born in the district of Rebeck West, only 72 kilometers northeast of Cape Town, at the house Bovenplatz of his parents. His parents had a farm, Ungendund, and he was born on 24th of March, 1870, born on Queen Victoria's birthday, which he remarked, it was my luck to be born on the same day as Queen Victoria, which the average Afrikaans person would not think something you'd want to draw attention to, but Jan Smuts was something of a royalist and a globalist and an imperialist as well. Now his father, Jacobus Abraham, was a prosperous cattle farmer and wheat farmer, and his father, Jacobus Abraham, was also a member of the Cape Parliament. So Smuts grew up as a farm boy, and his mother, Katrina de Vries, taught him the elements of reading and writing. At age 12, he attended his first school. He was described as precocious and intelligent, and he advanced quickly through the different classes. His teachers described him as having a prodigious capacity for reading, coupled with a photographic memory. He went to Victoria College, which later was renamed University of Stellenbosch, he studied High Dutch, Ancient Greek, German, and Science. Um, he graduated with full honors in literature and science. And at university met Sibella Margarita Izzy, Krieger, the daughter of a leading farmer, and they married in 1897, just before the turn of the century. Well, there was also um, a scholarship that he obtained to go and study at Christ College, Cambridge from 1891 to 1893. And uh, he passed with a double first, double cum laude in law, the first student to do so in over 600 years of Cambridge University's history. And the title of his treatise was Law, a Liberal Study. Now, Oxford and Cambridge have always been favorite recruiting grounds for bright students for employment as British intelligence agents. And for example, uh, at the same time that here's their Prince Felix, um, Felix Rothberg, which Yusupov was studying at Oxford University, and he is recruited along with his friend Oswald Rayner by British Secret Intelligence Service. And it's Yusupov who carried out the British operation of murdering uh, Rasputin, the assassination of Rasputin, who is considered to be a negative influence on the Russian royal family helping to lead them out of involvement in the war with Germany and therefore to keep Russia in the fight in the war and to keep the Eastern Front active. It was deemed essential to assassinate Rasputin, uh, who was trying to persuade the Russian royal family to get out of the war and make a separate peace. And so um, Stephen Goodson wrote an article some time back, Murdering the Tsars, the Rothschild Connection, um, showing how this Oxford University graduate who was working for British intelligence carried out the actual deed. Um, intriguing also, the author said that he met uh, the former leader of the British National Party, the BNP, John Tyndale, at his home in Sussex. And Tyndale had a deep concern that his party had been infiltrated by MR5. Well, four years later, the BNP had electoral breakthrough and had candidates elected to the European Parliament. But thereafter, they went to steep decline and eventual oblivion under a leader um, who Stephen Goodson and John Tyndale believed was an infiltrator from British intelligence. Uh, just that's an aside and a footnote in the book. Well, Smuts was a devotee of Walt Whitman's theory of synthesis, and he actually wrote an unpublished book on Walt Whitman, A Study in Evolution of Personality. And his private secretary, Pete Burke, says Smuts was also influenced by the works of Goth, Shakespeare, and Shelley. Well, Smuts turned down a professorship at Cambridge University and for a short while practiced as a lawyer, a barrister in the Middle Temple, one of the four inns of the court in London. But at that time, South Africa consisted of two independent Boer republics, the Orange Free State and the South African Republic, or Transvaal. 
and there were two British colonies, the Cape Colony and Natal. So in June 19, uh, sorry, 1895, Jan Smuts returned to the Cape Colony and uh, pledged his allegiance to the goals of Cecil John Rhodes and uh, the globalist goal of painting the map uh, red and ensuring Cape to Cairo, um, controlled by the British and Cape to Cairo Railway and all this. Stephen points out that Smith was ascetic and he he lived a very simple lifestyle. He wasn't much of a socialite. He was described as abrasive and brusque in his manner. And this prevented him from obtaining friends or sufficient briefs. And so to survive, he turned to newspaper reporting and he covered debates in the Cape Parliament. Uh, in one of the biographies on Smuts, Grey Steel, written by H.C. Armstrong, J.C. Smuts, a study in arrogance, said, Smuts could not hobnob with other junior councils. He didn't do the using passing of the time things they did. He did not play cards. He did not swap drinks. He never sat in casual, sociable manner of Cape Town to talk by the hour. He was constitutionally unable to get on to familiar or intimate terms with other men. He had a hesitating and reserved manner with a haughty look and his pale blue eyes which looked past or through people and held them at arm's length so that juniors liked him as little as the Cambridge undergraduates had. So he was not able to get on in journalism or politics uh, or for that matter in uh, um, being involved as a barrister. He didn't get enough work. So Smuts at this point joined the Afrikaner bond, which was led by Jan Hendrik Hofmeyer, who had an alliance with Cecil John Rhodes, who governed the Cape. Both Hofmeyer and Rhodes were Freemasons, and that seemed to have given Smuts an in because Smuts was a Freemason. And so Freemasons do help one another. And uh, in fact, Hofmeyer was Grand Master of the Lodge of the Good Hope. Cecil Rhodes, of course, was a great speculator who had amassed a massive fortune after amalgamating all the diamond mines in Kimberley and Northern Cape. He had obtained his finance from the Rothschild Bank, and that's not a theory. I've seen the check for a million pounds on display under glass cabinet in the De Beers Museum at Kimberley by the big hole. So uh, they opened it very clearly. There's this check from Rothschild to Cecil John Rhodes for a million pounds, the biggest check ever made to that stage, which enabled Cecil Rhodes to uh, buy up all the other uh, diggings and he managed to create a monopoly, which enabled him to set the price of diamonds at an unrealistically high amount by limiting supply. Now, Cecil Rhodes had his own views for the political development of Southern Africa, but he still had to remain a servant of the Rothschild interests because uh, he was dependent on their capital, on their investment. So Cecil Rhodes became aware of Smuts in February 1891 after Smuts had been chosen to give a reply to a speech he had given to students at Stellenbosch. And Rhodes was so impressed with Smuts's reply that he asked Hofmeyer keep an eye on Smuts for future employment. And later on, he wrote to Alfred Harmsworth, who was Lord Rothmere, the newspaper, and keep your eye on this young man and Smuts. He will do a big service for the empire before he is finished. Smuts greatly admired Rhodes for his imperial ambitions, and he supports him wholeheartedly. And so, having failed to succeed as an advocate in Cape Town, Smuts obtained employment as a junior legal counsel to the De Beers Diamond Mining Company in Kimberley, and he was drawn into the Rothschild's interests. On 9th of October 1859, at a meeting at the De Beers Political and Debating Society in Town Hall in Kimberley, Smuts openly declared his support for Cecil Rhodes and his vision. His biographer, F.S. Crawford, describes Smuts' devotion to the ideals of Cecil Rhodes in these words. Little did he know that the spirit of Rhodes would be with him for the rest of his days, and that in time he, Jan Smuts, would be called Rhodes Recidivus. Little did he know that he and Rhodes were kindred spirits. And he really was a globalist and an imperialist in the same line as Cecil Rhodes, it would seem. Well, in 1886, gold had been discovered on the Witwatersrand, which today is roughly where Johannesburg sits. On the announcement of the discovery of gold, General Pete Joubert, who is Commandant General of the Southern Republic, said, instead of rejoicing, you should rather weep. 
this gold will cause our land to be drenched in blood, which was very prophetically true. The discovery created enormous interest among speculators and particularly the Rothschild dynasty, which represented the foremost banking group of the age. Headed at that time by the three brothers, Nathan, Alfred and Leopold Rothschild. They were extremely anxious to obtain control of these vast gold fields to further their monopoly on the gold standard of banking, uh, which enabled them to create money out of nothing and to sell this on credit to gullible borrowers, which were mainly governments, and charge at interest, which kept people in pretty perpetual slavery. Whoever controls the debt controls everything. So the leader of the South African Republic, where all the gold mines were situated, was a very resolute biblical Boer leader, President Stephanus Johannes Paulus Kruger, which we know as Oum Paul or Uncle Paul. In 1883, when he became president, President Kruger enunciated the principle that the natural wealth of the country must contribute to the industrial and general development of the state to secure the future for its people. Well, the mining magnates of um, the landlords were all Jewish, George Albu, Barney Bonatu, Alfred Bight, Solly Joel, Sammy Marks, and Lionel Phillips. And they all were united in attempting to unseat President Kruger by using any pretext. But the pretext they settled on was the Oatlanders, the foreigners, the workers and speculators on the mines who now outnumbered the Boers by about two to one. And so they started the campaign of rights for Oatlanders, the foreigners, who were not citizens. Of course, most of these speculators and miners who'd come in were not interested in political responsibility or the vote. They weren't planning to put down roots or settle there. They were there to get the gold and then get out and get back to their homelands. But nevertheless, the British government and the Jewish bankers decided to use the Oatlander cause as a human rights cause to whip up British public opinion against Paul Kruger and the Transvaal. And uh, Professor John Hobson, an English economist, observed only a very small minority of the British Outlanders would have been willing to accept the franchise upon the conditions indicated by Sir Alfred Milner at Bloemfontein and later in Cape Town. There was a strong prima facie case for the view that the franchise was entirely a sham grievance. Now that's what economist Professor John Hobson said at the time. It was a sham um, grievance whipped up in order for to mobilize political pressure. He noted there was a large number of non-British outlanders, mostly Russian, Polish, and German Jews, with roving propensities, with no strongly rooted attachment to any country. So in a letter to Sir Alfred Bight, the mining magnate Sir Lionel Phillips remarked, as to the franchise, I don't think many people here care a fig about it. So the British government were pretending to speak for the outlanders, but the outlanders themselves were not interested in citizenship, but they were a useful tool to bring about a political crisis. So the 7th of August, 1895, the British government, which had previously been under the moderate liberal administration of Prime Minister William Gladstone, was defeated, largely because of the First Anglo-War and the Anglo-Zulu War, which were serious defeats for the British, and as a result, Gladstone's administration Repeated and replaced with a new conservative government under Disraeli, which was very much more confrontational. So on 29th of December 1895, a force of 600 soldiers under the command of Dr. Leander Starr Jamison, who was the right-hand man of Cecil John Rhodes and first governor of Rhodesia, he crossed the border into Western Transvaal and set up for Johannesburg with a, what was called the Jamison Raid with a goal of leading a uprising of Oatlanders, which didn't actually happen, uh, and in a revolution basically seized control of the Transvaal, some kind of Ryder Haggard type of uh, vision. The British had managed to seize the Transvaal back in 1877, before gold was discovered, uh, with just a force of six um, mounted police from Natal, which included Ryder Haggard before he became a Sir. Ryder Haggard was part of this um, force which literally rode into Transvaal and on the flagpole in uh, the um, church square in Pretoria where the statue of, of 
Paul Kruger now stands, and uh, declared by edict that Transvaal was now a colony of um, Great Britain, and uh, not a Boer resisted them. And the reason for that was they've chosen the town well. The president of Transvaal at that time, who's President Pretorius, had minted a coin with his face on it. And the Boers were so outraged that one of their leaders could be so idolatrous as to put his image on a coin. You know, who did he think he was? But worse than that, he tried to tax the farmers. And the farmers had that. We just went on a great trek to get away from taxes of the British. Why would we want to be taxed by you? And so when the president called for the commandos to come out and protect their independence, the people stayed home in their farms. They weren't interested. And so Britain gained control of the Transvaal without a shot being fired in 1877. But then they foolishly tried to tax the Boer farmers, and their tax collectors were, of course, chased off uh, the farms at the point of a rifle. And before you knew it, the British seized some poor man's farm and were trying to sell it as a, um, at an auction. And the Boer farmers turned up there and basically uh, forced the auction to end and... Uh, Ensure that the man got his property given back to him. The British were trying to even auction off his uh, oxen and his horses and his ox cart, which of course is just totally unacceptable for an independence-minded people. And so the Boers then went to war against the British in the First Anglo-Boer War, 1880, and beat them, Battle of Majuba most famously. Well, that's not mentioned in the book here, I'm just adding that in. But um, now, Jamison doubtless thought he could do the same thing as Ryder Haggard had done um, back in 1877, just for the small force of soldiers, seize the great country of, of the Transvaal, or Southern Republic. But it failed, and as Jamison's force was routed and uh, arrested, and Paul Kruger very wisely didn't put him on trial or have him shot or hung as a war criminal or anything like that. He handed him back to the British government to deal with. And, uh, of course, Britain had to do something openly, but... Secretly, they're all in support of what Jamison was doing anyway. So Paul Kruger won a great political coup um, by not listening to the hardliners amongst his population, but by choosing a diplomatic way out and putting the uh, ball back in the British court. Britain was trying to pick a fight with, with um, Paul Kruger, and he didn't take the bait. But despite Smuts's support for Pax Britannica, he appeared to be deeply delusioned by his hero's underhand behavior towards Afrikaner brethren. And so at this point, Smuts defected, apparently, to the Transvaal Republic. But Lieutenant General Pete Swanepoel, uh, who is for many years a detective, for 22 years he worked in South African military intelligence. Uh, he was in the Boss Bureau of State Security. He was a key figure in establishing South African security police. And um, General Pete Swanepoel authored 10 books, including two on the secret activities of the CIA in South Africa. Uh, Lieutenant General Pete Swanepoel of South African Intelligence stayed, stated that this disillusionment was faked and Smuts's immigration or defection to Transvaal was carefully planned move to infiltrate the South African Republic's government at a key time to weaken it from the inside and to bring about war with Great Britain. So after failing to secure any lick ship and law at the Southern College in Cape Town. Um, he had departed for Johannesburg on 20th January 1897, and in Johannesburg he again found it impossible to obtain sufficient legal work, ostensibly because he wasn't sociable enough. He forget people's names. He uh, was, in fact, um, in many ways socially awkward, and so at about this time he. Um, applied for and became Attorney General of the Transvaal. On the 29th of July 1897 article in Transvaal Critics, Smuts was accused of receiving funds from Rhodes. The magazine stated that Mr. Advocate Smuts enjoys nothing but is nothing but an envoyable reputation in the colony. He's notorious that he was on Mr. Rhodes' bounty list and uh, Smuts never sued the author of the article um, in either civil or criminal court, so perhaps that accusation was true. And certainly that's what General Swanepoel believes, that he was working for British intelligence at the moment that he applied for and became Attorney General of the Transvaal. Well, 
The secretary for the colonies at that time was Joseph Chamberlain, who tried to claim that Britain had oversight, some kind of suzerainty over the Transvaal Republic, that they um, could control him. Well, Professor Westlake, who is Queen's Council of Cambridge University at the time and, and the Institute of International Law, concluded that the contention of Chamberlain that a suzerainty exists is absolutely invalid, contrary to what the obvious meaning of the Convention of 1884 and the rules of interpretation of the law of nations. So even contemporaries believed this was completely fraudulent, that uh, the British Secretary for the Colonies claimed some kind of jurisdiction over the Transvaal Republic, but nevertheless, uh, they um, continued to move uh, to bring the Transvaal to war. Well, President Kruger was quite against the appointment of Smuts as a state attorney, but he has prevailed to do so by General Pete Joubert, who happened to be a Freemason, one of the very few senior boys who was a Freemason. And it seems the Freemasons work together, just like um, Smuts as a Freemason, uh, Pete Joubert uh, ensured that he got the appointment as state attorney general. And so at age 28, in 1898, Smuts was appointed as the uh, Attorney General of the Transvaal, even though he is still a British subject and he is still two years below the age at which such appointments were made, well, he introduced all kinds of measures to prevent illicit gold dealing, and uh, which of course would have been to the bankers' uh, delight. And he uh, was described by President Kruger all the way through as a skellum, meaning it's a Dutch word for a devious character that you can't trust. Later on, Smuts was known as Slim Yanni, or Clever Yanni, which is another word for devious as well. Well, all the mine owners started to reach some kind of agreement with the Southern Republic, and uh, Lord Milner was trying to do everything in his power to sow discord and enmity between them, and nothing was allowed to defect Lord Milner from his aim to ensure that the British had mastery of South Africa from the Cape to the Zambezi. Well, despite the fact that Smuts was state attorney for the Transvaal and foreign affairs was subject to his responsibility, he maintained a close, friendly, confidential relationship with the acting British agent in Pretoria, Edmund Fraser, later the permanent British agent, Sir Conningham Green. He had private meetings with them, which were all highly irregular for person in this privileged and confidential position. Well, in 1899, Fraser informed Milner by letter that Smuts would be visiting Cape Town in early March of 1899. And there's strong circumstantial evidence that while Smuts was in Cape Town, he secretly met with Lord Milner, who was conspiring to bring the British to war with the Transvaal. And so doubtless he was being given his instructions. Smuts attended the conferences, which is meant to be averting war as Kruger's advisor, and as his state attorney, he was meant to be responsible for foreign affairs and advising the president. Well, Kruger, on the advice of Smuts, made one concession after another, um, including reducing the amount of years a person had to be resident in Transvaal from 14 years to seven years before they could apply for citizenship, even though he knew this would result in the Boers being outnumbered by two to one. Eventually, Kruger bowed his head between his hands with tears streaming down his beard, saying, it's my country that you want. And it was quite clear Milner did not want the concessions that Kruger was offering unwisely. Um, and so Milner broke off the conference after three days and uh, basically informed as much that uh, um, these concessions were were not helpful. They didn't want a resolution. Well, Milner later described Smuts as Kruger's brilliant state attorney. Well, I'm sure he was brilliant from his perspective. And then President Kruger offered to reduce the residency period even more, down from seven years down to five years. But Milner, whose point of view was, we want reform or war, was unmoved. He still wanted war. He wasn't happy with the reform. So on the 26th of August, 1899, Chamberlain demanded a commission of inquiry, which the Boers accepted. 
and Chamberlain withdrew his own proposal and demanded a five-year franchise without any safeguards of the London Confession, and the Boers refused this. So on 22nd of September, Chamberlain suspended these pseudo-negotiations, saying the British government would formulate its own proposals for a final settlement, which of course sounds like an ultimatum. If the Boers did not submit, they would be compelled to do so by force, he said. Well, at this point, General Smuts wrote a pamphlet, A Century of Wrong, which was probably written uh, by a reformer, um, William Thomas Steed. It was distributed throughout Europe for propaganda purposes, and it made it look like Smuts was taking up the case for the Boers, but in fact, uh, it was again probably a false flag disinformation campaign. And so, the British were at this point transporting vast amounts of troops from England to South Africa and stockpiling weapons in the Cape and Natal. So on the 22nd of September 1899, in a cable marked secret and personal, Chamberlain wrote to Milner, Cabinet unanimous resolves to see the matter through. All preparations for the expeditionary force will be proceeded with as quickly as possible, but without public announcement at present. Our proposal for settlement will be agreed on next week. If forwarded by mail, uh, will allow for four weeks interval for reinforcements, which are now on their way and set to arrive soon. So just before the war, they drew up treaties with France, Germany and Portugal to prevent them giving any assistance to Boer republics without British consent to ensure the Boers' isolation. So the British were playing an international game of grab based on a moral level of gangsters. Britain, with sea power, um, able to intimidate other countries in Europe not to provide assistance to the Boers, because to do so, they'd have to cross the seas and the Royal Navy could prevent that. So a great majority of people on the continent of Europe were opposed to what Britain was doing and were sympathetic to the Boers, but they didn't have the sea power to challenge the Royal Navy. Now, Rothschild's point man in South Africa was plainly Jan Smuts, who was in charge of the legal affairs, and he now was tasked to act as the agent provocateur. So General Smuts drew up an ultimatum on 9th of October 1899, demanding immediate withdrawal of Her Majesty's forces. In the name of the government of South African Republic, I have the honor to bring to your information that this government, with an eye to the breaking off of friendly relations with Her Majesty's government, as shown by the constant bringing up of troops to the borders of the Republic and the selling of war reinforcements from all parts of the British Empire, herewith informs you that unless they receive within 48 hours an assurance that the troops of the, on the border of the Republic should be instantly removed, all reinforcements which have arrived in South Africa since 1st of June 1889 must be removed, and Her Majesty's forces which are now on the high seas may not be landed in any port of South Africa, Unless this happens, my government will consider such actions of Her Majesty's government as a formal declaration of war, and we will not hold ourselves responsible for the consequences thereof. So by issuing this very unwise, unnecessary ultimatum, Smuts cast the transfer republic in the role of the aggressor and played directly into enemy's hands. Lord Lansdowne, Secretary of War, wrote to Chamberlain, Accept my felicitations. I don't think Kruger could have played your cards better than he has. My soldiers are in ecstasies, because now the British were able to go to war with the Transvaal, make it look like the Transvaal had initiated the declaration of war against them. And this ultimatum, which played into British hands as a propaganda victory, was drafted by Smuts. So the principal object of the Rothschilds in starting this war with the Boers was to secure control of the gold mines described as the richest real estate on earth. And with the result of technical scientific advances in the 19th century, there had been large increases in productivity, large rise in living standards. And between just 1870 and 1900, economic output per capita in Great Britain had rose by 500%. There had been very few wars during this period, and Great Britain's national debt had been in decline since 1887. So the bankers wanted a war to increase the profits. They specialized in financing governments and wars with the best known way of generating large amounts of debt. The Anglo-Boer War cost £222 million 
or 25 billion pounds in today's money. It added 132 million pounds to the British national debt and the increase in the profits to the Rothschild Reserve Bank way beyond that. So the British expected a very brief campaign, what they said, the war will be over by tea time kind of attitude. And so they issued the Queen's South Africa Medal and uh, with the dates 1899 to 1900 engraved them. Well, they later to remove the dates of all the medals because the war lasted a lot longer than just one year. In fact, it went on until 1902. So they had to change all their medals because they'd been a bit too presumptuous about the easy victory. And this despite the fact that the Boers had no established army. The Boers were an army of farmers, volunteers. Aside from a small regiment of state artillery of just 110 guns, the Boers had 87,000 soldiers, but they were all part-timers. They were farmers full-time and commandos part-time. And so they provide their own horses. They were mounted. They had rifles. They were famous in their marksmanship. They could hit a target from up to a thousand yards or kilometer. There were also thousands of volunteers who volunteered from Europe to serve on the Boer side, including a brigade of 300 Irish led by Colonel John Blake, who later wrote a highly critical expose of the British, a West Pointer with the Boers. And there were 50 American Irish from Chicago under Captain Patrick O'Connor, who also served as an ambulance unit during the war. Winston Churchill arrived in Cape Town 31st of October 1899 with 60 bottles of spirits and a good supply of claret. He is a war correspondent for the Monday Post and he wanted to get to the front. So on the 15th of November 1899, Winston Churchill commandeered an ammunition train traveling to Ladysmith Hotel. It was an armored train. But of course, armored trains are on rails and it's easy to derail a train. And so near the town of Frere, just ambushed by commandos led by General Louis Botta, a large boulder was placed at the bottom of a decline, so the steam engine crashed into that. Churchill was captured hiding under the train. Now, as a journalist, he was not allowed to bear arms, but he had a Mauser automatic pistol uh, with lethal illegal dum-dum bullets in its possession. On either account, the Boers would have been entitled to shoot him out of hand as a war criminal, uh, but they spared him. And uh, he said at the time that Louis Botta, um had him in his sights. And, you know, quite interesting that Winston Churchill could have ended his career right there and then. Louis Botta might have been a lot more popular amongst the Boers if he had. Uh, well, Winston Churchill then went to a prison of war camp, the State Model School in Pretoria, where other British officers captured were held. And uh, he was told by the Boers at the time, you know, it is damned capitalists and Jews who've caused this war. Well, Winston Churchill's mother was an American Jew, and she was uh, he was not very impressed with that. He also made a comment in his biography, the most terrifying sound he ever heard in his life more terrifying than the sound of incoming artillery shells, was the night he was captured by the Boers in the town. He heard the Boers singing psalms. Interesting that Winston Churchill would describe the singing of psalms by his enemy as the most terrifying sound he heard. And he wrote in his book, I thought, my God, what enemy have we chosen? And then he added, they have the better cause. Which is probably some of the more honest things he ever wrote. Well, after giving his word as a gentleman that he would not attempt to escape, the Boers pulled off the guards that would have been monitoring him. And so on the 12th of December, Winston Churchill broke his word as a gentleman, escaped by climbing over the six-foot boundary fence, hid in a goods train under sacks of coal, and reached Portuguese territory in Lorenzo Marks of neighboring Mozambique um, nine days later. This was much dramatized later um, to make it seem more um, impressive than it actually was. <clears throat> now, the Boers obtained some early victories in the war, like at Talana, Nicholson's Neck, and Spionkop, and Margusfontein, and uh, showed themselves to be very effective soldiers, but their generals adopted the wrong strategy. Instead of seizing the 
ports like Durban and preventing British reinforcements from arriving, they conducted pointless, time-wasting sieges of Ladysmith, Kimberley and Mafeking. And the duplicitous conduct of General Pete Chabert was responsible for this fiasco. Pete Chabert failed to advance to Durban, which he could have easily surrounded and prevented the landing of further British troops. So in March 1900, General Pete Chabert, head of the, the Freemasonry in charge of the Boers' defence, was found guilty of treason after a court martial in Pretoria and told he had to end his life either with a revolver or take poison. He chose poison on 28th of March 1900. That was the General Pete Chabert who had ensured the appointment of Jan Smuts as State Attorney General who had gotten the Boers into war in the first place. Well, in November 1899, General Smuts tried to meddle with the selection procedure of the British of the Boer Officer Corps, and he could have destabilized the Boer campaign. He tried to campaign against Louis Boerta being uh, head of the Boers in the Natal area and trying to get someone else, General Martinez Prince who was much less effective and uh, under these circumstances, the Boer High Command um, followed, unfortunately, his advice, and the initiative of the Boers in Natal was lost after initial successes under Louis Boerter. Well, on 31st of May 1900, Johannesburg fell to huge attack of British forces, and uh, General Smuts was entrusted by the Boer government to demolish the mines, to sabotage and blow them up, and he failed to execute this order. And uh, instead, it seems that he betrayed one of his people who is meant to be dealing with this as acting commandant, um, was arrested. And so the mines fell into British hands, absolutely undamaged, and their mining went on uninterrupted. Well, later, a military council of senior officers led by Boerter and Smuts and held on behalf of the British, decided to draft a telegram to President Kruger to suggest immediate surrender. When President Stain heard of this proposal, he was furious. President Stain was the head of the Orange Free State. He immediately intervened and rejected any notion of capitulation. In the latter half of 1900, a powerful British army of almost half a million troops failed to defeat the Boers on commando, there were never more than 6,000 active commandos at any one time. But because of the bushcraft and tenacity of the Boers who were fighting on their home soil, uh, the British forces and the Canadian, Australian, others who were here uh, failed to defeat the Boers who continued to receive support from their farms, of course, while they were in the field. Well, the British had signed the Geneva Convention uh, the Hague Rules of Warfare on the 29th of July 1899, uh, they, although Britain was a high contracting party, they decided to do the very things that the Geneva Convention forbade and wage war against the civilians, especially the women and children of the Boer Republics. So Great Britain was bound to observe the rules of civilized warfare in accordance with the international law that they had just signed at the convention of the Hague, and, and they started to burn churches, public buildings, farmhouses, homesteads, poisoning wells, slaughtering cattle, and uh, women and children were molested and abused, and over 155,000 women and children were herded into 48 British concentration camps, housed in tents even in winter when temperatures were below zero. 34,000 Boer women and children died, of whom 79% were under 16 years of age. They died of exposure, malnutrition, and poor sanitation. They died at a greater rate, something like 40% a year of the entire population died each year, which is worse than any concentration camp or prison camp in the Second World War. And uh, the British took Pretoria on the 4th of July, 1900, and Smuts was ordered to withdraw the remaining half a million pounds in gold and coin from the state treasury and ship them to the new capital at Middleburg. And while British shells were landing near the railway station, uh, they 
uh, evacuated a lot of these, which has been described as the Kruger Millions, and they meant to have been missing since then. Um, and interesting, General Smuts was the one who shipped the, the gold out of Pretoria. Well, um, a lot of it ended up in the German steamships, Bundelroth and Styria, and ended up in Europe. Uh, so the Transvaal Republic still had operating capital overseas. After the British conquered Pretoria, um, Smuts took to the field, as did the other commanders. And uh, on the 13th of December 1900, at Nordkadak near Makarisburg, Smuts displayed such incompetence that he allowed two-thirds of a British brigade of 1,500 troops with nine um, uh, 4.7-inch naval guns to escape. Now, General um, Rolf Clements was the British commander, and he is also a um, Freemason, interestingly, and a friend of Smuts, both before and later in life. Well, the Boers had trapped them in an indefensible position. General de la Rey was so incensed with Smuts's ineptitude and possible treason that he had him publicly flogged. He thrashed him with a shambok, which is a leather whip. I don't know how many people could imagine someone like General Smuts being publicly whipped in front of his men. But that's what General Delaray thought of his treachery in allowing these British forces to escape. And the severity of the um, punishment indicates that uh, Delaray, the line of the Western Transvaal, um, must have believed that Smuts allowed the British to escape deliberately or he wouldn't have been punished so severely. Well, Smuts sent a letter to General Delaray stating that the districts of Potchefstroom and Volmer and stuff were now under his command, and he'd take the title of Acting Assistant Commandant General. Delaray responded saying that you cannot appoint yourself or promote yourself, and uh, General Boerter did not make this um, decision of Smuts official. Smuts then tried to negotiate peace negotiations in May 1901 on behalf of the British and travelled to Standerton, which was under the command of the very same General Clements that he had allowed to escape after the Battle of Neukadak six months earlier. And he stayed in the town with him, obviously having good relations with him. The telegram was sent to President Kruger and Kruger replied, surrenders other question, the Boers will fight on. Well, while in Standerton, Smuts was able to meet his wife, Izzy, who, interestingly, was not confined to a concentration camp. Every other Boer general's wives were put into concentration camps, but not Smuts's wife. She was the only one who was not touched, which again strengthens the suspicion that he was working for the British all along. Well, Smuts then in August 1901 began a journey to the Cape. He took his commander into the Cape Colony, which is British territory with the ostensible instruction to create or lead a uprising of the Afrikaners in the Cape, who were sympathetic, of course, to what was going on in the Transvaal and the Free State. Stephen Goodson's also got the postcard, Christmas card from the Rothschilds, signed by Lord Rothschild, Alfred Rothschild, Leopold Rothschild, um, sent to their troops with compliments of the season, and every... British, Canadian, Australian, New Zealand soldier, every Empire soldier received a Christmas hamper from the Rothschilds of the personal Christmas card from them, containing sweets, stationery, tobacco, pipe, packets of cigarettes, um, cards, a book, Christmas cake, plum pudding, and uh, their compliments for their service. So if you thought you were fighting for the British Empire during the England Boer War, the Rothschilds gave a personal thank you to the people for fighting for them. Well, Smuts never discussed or consulted with his men about his plans. He remained silent and ineffective and during his whole time in the Cape. Only had one engagement with the British at Modafontein and the Eastern Cape played a very passive role and any battles were left to his Deputy Commandant Ben Bauer. Um, even when his force was within 50 miles of Port Elizabeth, a major port city refrained from making any attack. His 
orders for the Boer High Command had been foment a general uprising. There was a lot of sympathy for the Boers in the Cape. There were many ready to join them. But um, from the beginning, Smuts had premeditatedly set out to sabotage this uh, goal. And uh, Swanip- General Swanepoel, in his book, highlights the ridiculous situation that uh, Smuts was turning away people arriving with their own horses and rifles who wanted to join his commander and send them back. So he was not interested in fomenting a general uprising at all. In fact, did everything he could to discourage it. Well, he received from his brother-in-law, Toti Krika, a sack of gold during the uh, time in the Cape. And um, although the money is meant to have come from his family, it's believed that this came from British military intelligence. So he's even receiving money and gold during the war from the other side. And when the British were forced to end the war promptly, they sent a white flag and a cart to Smuts, asking him to then round up the other Boer generals to come to Vereniken, where they could meet for a peace convention. And Lord Kitchener, the commander-in-chief, ordered him to be allowed to um, have safe conduct and requested this. He boarded a warship in Simonstown, where he remained for a week, he is treated royally, we read. So it seems quite evident that General Smuts was working for British military intelligence while he was ostensibly a Boer commander. Well, when the commanders were all brought together, which included President Stain and General Christian de Vett in Delray, who were known as Bitter Enders, they were uninterested in peace. They wanted to continue to fight. And they pointed out that they were close to victory because the summer rains were coming, which would bring, provide more grazing for their horses and more foliage for their horses and cover and for their operations. And that, that was just four months away. They also believed the British would have to capitulate from sheer exhaustion, from the heavy financial burden of this war, which has cost them hundreds of millions of pounds. And not everyone was thrilled about this from either going on from the New Zealand, Australia, Canada, most of the Dominions were not happy about this ongoing war. And so uh, instead of just waiting it out, believing time was on their side, Smuts in no uncertain terms crushed all hope that a general uprising of Afrikaners in the Cape would occur. And uh, Baron Daniel Bauer wrote, we now began to be much troubled by men desirous of joining us. Every day they arrived complete with horse, bridle, saddle. They were ready for service, very capable people. But ever since we've been in the colony, we could have had a continual stream of by saying the word, even in Clan William, Picketburg and Varenstorp, who were more persistent than anywhere else, um, General Smuts turned them away. So at the peace conference, Baron Daniel Bauer said, actually, the Cape is ready to rise, but uh, General Smuts wouldn't allow them to. Well, Smuts was meant to be just the legal advisor of the Transvaal delegation. Uh, and therefore, he didn't have to be part of it, but Kitchen insisted that he be part of the delegation. There were 60 delegates, 30 from each republic, Transvaal and Free State, and they were uh, they were prevailed upon by Smuts to sign a peace treaty without delay. And uh, the British had to end the war because of the financial burden, and already 72% of the Transvaal population had perished. Out of a population of 288,000, uh, 70% had either been taken prisoner or died in the war. And the British offered £3 million compensation for the destroyed farms and livestock. But that would have been only a small percentage of the actual cost. Because 30,000 farms had been destroyed, the wells poisoned, hundreds of thousands of livestock killed, uh, the uh, Boers were ruined, uh, their wives and children were dying of concentration camps at a 40% rate per year. So... Many of the bitter enders wanted to fight on, uh, but uh, Smuts urged immediate surrender and acceptance of the British terms, which was done, although uh, President Stain refused to sign. In 1903, Joseph Chamberlain visited the republics or former republics and uh, was determined to um, repair the colonies. And for this, the Rothschilds had offered a loan at interest, of course. And uh, this is guaranteed by the British government. On 9th of November 1905, on the birthday of King Edward VII, 
the fabulous Kellen diamond, the largest diamond ever found, was donated to British Crown as a token of Boer loyalty and thanks for responsible government. And it was Jan Smuts who was instrumental in organizing the donation of this incredibly valuable diamond uh, to the Crown. It's still part of the Crown jewels to this day, which seems to be more than it would have cost to have um, repaired the farms in, in, in Transvaal. They could have sold this diamond to the British and used the money to help repair their farms, but this is what Smuts decided to do. Peter, in 1905, Peter, there was, sorry, yes. I, I have sorry, to jump in. We're, we're over time. We need to wrap it up and uh, do part We do need to wrap it up. And we've only gotten into the Anglo-Boer War. haven't even reached the First and Second World War, so that'll have to come in later time. But I think you can see Jan Smuts was a globalist, and he was um, a tool of the bankers and very much beholden to the Freemasons and the Zionists from the beginning. Um, we'll continue that next week then. Thank you, Peter. Before we go, can you let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you? Yes. So my personal email is peter at frontline, F-R-O-N-T-L-I-N-E dot O-R-G dot Z-A. Peter at frontline dot org dot Z-A is my email. And you can find our work on www.frontlinemissionsa.org. And if you're interested in the books, it's available from Christian Liberty Books, General Jan Smuts, The Debunking of a Myth by Stephen Mitford Goodson. Thank you so much, Thank Peter. You, okay, so uh, you have been listening to a show entitled The Real Story of Stephen Mitford Goodson's Expose of Globalist General Jan Smuts, South Africa's worst Prime Minister, and why he wasn't assassinated part of this one. I want to thank all of you for listening. I'll be back with you tomorrow. And until then, folks, bye for now. Bye.